welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm Brendan. I'm a sexaholic. My sobriety date's October 29th, uh, 2003, and I'm just setting, <laughs> setting my own timer for 25 minutes. Um, I'm really grateful to be here, grateful for the meeting. I think maybe a few years ago I shared on this at this meeting a number of years ago. Um, but, uh, my story discloses in a general way, what I used to be like, what happened and what I'm like now. And I guess it all began. I grew up in a semi-rural part of far Northern California. And, uh, before I ever remember left me, I remember being afraid, abnormally fearful as compared to my peers. I was the youngest of four boys, no serious, huge trouble in my family. My mom had some depression when I was a kid, whatever. Uh, but uh, that's what was going on. And then uh, I remember about preschool, for some reason, having my first experience of lust, thinking of a girl in my preschool naked. And that's the first memory. And then around six or seven, I found pornography. And I was kind of off to the races. I would find it. I would hide it. I would keep it. You know, I, the the masturbation started around that age. I had trouble sleeping at night. And I would listen to, at the time, talk radio wasn't political. And they had all sorts of odd things on talk radio, you know, kind of self-help psychologist stuff. And I would get lust out of that, listen to that at night. And then around the time I got in second grade, the romantic part of this addiction started. Um, I just remember fantasizing about some girl who was in sixth grade at the time, romantically. And then a few years later, I got obsessed with the musical Les Miserables, uh, the whole romantic thing of that I'd listen to it every day I still know every word of every song of every part in that uh and around fourth grade or so I started reading those kind of uh teeny or whatever romance novels there used to be some that were kind of horror and they were directed at like both men and boys and girls which I don't know if those exist anymore anyway and so the romantic side of things happened but I just always felt like I couldn't connect with women I was never really athletic I wasn't a complete I had friends and whatever, but I never felt like a connection with women. And so this sort of went on both sides of things until I got to high school. And then I'm 39. And so it was, it was 94 spring of 95. I got on the internet within five minutes. I had found pornography and I was off to the races looking at pornography all the time. My computer was destroyed four times before virus protection by downloading that stuff. And I, I was just so in denial that I said, Oh, I, you know, it's a, it's a lemon of a computer. And so this went on um, more and more. And then when I was a uh, junior in high school, I just basically just became obsessed with this girl in my class. I was in a small co-ed Catholic high school, probably only 200. And my fantasy life was so strong. And when I say fantasy, I don't mean explicit sexual fantasy. I mean romantic fantasy, lust. It was lust. I didn't know it at the time. But my fantasy life was so strong that even though I knew nothing was going to happen between her and me, Every day, my mind would be going, and by the next morning, I think it would, and it would go that way for almost a year. And then in the back of my mind, I'm saying, well, so things don't work out with women. I, you know, I'm not connecting with them, whatever. 
when I get to college. And so I went to, to the main college, the college that my three older bro- two of my older brothers went to, and I don't know why I decided it would be a great idea to try to pledge the fraternity they were in, which if you know anything about fraternities, to be a double legacy, to have two people who were in there and not get in takes some feat, and I did not get a bid. It was very humiliating. And I just couldn't seem to make friends with people. And I was odd in all sorts of ways. And the addiction was progressing. So I was to the point where I had roommates my first year in college. And I would be, when they were asleep, acting out with pornography. I would be finding bathrooms with locked doors to act out, not with others, but with myself. But more on that later. Um, And all this was going on. And I just felt, again, I was always looking for the next thing. It's like, okay, I'm going to pledge another fraternity. I got in that fraternity. I thought, this is going to solve all my problems. And yes, I got along with the guys. And I thought oh, I'm going to be able to connect with women. Well, I couldn't. And I, would, I was never an alcoholic, but I would drink a lot to try to, but I would get too drunk and couldn't. So I wouldn't even, you know, and, and there are a few things like misconduct there, but that wasn't my main thing. And then I was a junior in college and I, uh, and I got a girlfriend and sex happened or whatever. And I thought, oh, this is going to change everything. But what I found was is my lust life was so strong that let me just put this delicately to be able to perform, you know, in any way I would have to act out several times outside of that. So I was back to the same amount of pornography for the thing I thought would solve my problem. And I found that my fantasy world this way, sexual fantasy was so deep that I was degrading my girlfriend in all sorts of ways. I just felt like, like I just was all I cared about sex and I was just taking advantage of her all the time. And, uh, and that was a bad feeling. And she was, had her own thing. And what I also found powerlessness, I could not break up with her. Because every time I broke up, some sex was off or whatever, I was off to the races again. I couldn't get away. And finally, she, I guess, got another boyfriend or something, and the problem was solved. But I get to my senior year in high school, 9-11 had happened. I was really at my lowest ebb. I was living. The fraternity had been kicked off campus. I was acting out at least three times a day, morning, noon, and night, literally. And, uh, and again, the, the addiction had progressed. I should say this, you know, my experience with the, with pornography is that on the internet is every line I'm going to cross, I'm going to see things and maybe they'll disgust me at first, but eventually I'll get to the point where I'll find them enticing. And that's the way it played out for me with pornography, worse and worse and worse, getting more degraded and, you know, feeling terrible about myself. Anyway, so we get to, to college, and I, I have a religious awakening. I have a religious background that involves telling a clergy person, clergyman, that you've sinned and what you've done. And I hadn't really practiced that in a while. I never in my life told the truth about the lust thing. So I found one and did, and was going every week. And maybe, and I was trying to stop for the first time in my life. And maybe I'd go a week, maybe I'd go two weeks, once a month. One time I went 62 days, but always I was back to it. And then I was in law school in, in a big city, and it was not in a great part of the big city. And again, I would, I would be stopping, but at key times, out of nowhere, seemingly like a robot, I would be off to an adult bookstore looking at pornography, or I was that guy in the corner at the computer lab looking at pornography, and it was out of control. And I fooled myself to saying I was getting better because instead of acting out three times a day, it was once a week or once every two weeks. But when it hit me, it hit me harder than ever. And I was crossing boundaries. I was looking at worse pornography. I was acting out with objects and I was getting in positions where I was getting propositioned by people of the same sex, which was not my thing, but I saw somewhere that it would be my thing if I kept going. So we get to the end of my first year in law school. I had not gotten good grades. I was really, I was really down. I wasn't planning suicide, but I wanted to get hit by a bus. 
And I should say this is important because I have a religious background and I, my belief at the time was that if I, you know, if I killed myself, I'd be going from the frying pan to the fire. It would not be a good career move spiritually. And so it shows me how bad I was. And so uh, somehow I had read some book about marriage. And I said, there's got to be an answer in the end, how to do with this. And I couldn't find it in the book, couldn't find it in the footnotes, but in the back I saw resources, SA. And I went to SA and I ordered the white book and, and found it and read it cover to cover. And I, again, I should say I was very prejudiced against 12-step groups for whatever reason. I'm not sure why. There were some things in my past or family that might account for it. But I read it cover to cover. I went to my first meeting in San Francisco, September 4th, 2003. And I'm a compliant person, not surrendered, compliant. So if you tell me to do something, I'll tend to do it. I liked being a pledge in a fraternity. Give me sense. And so I came in. And they said, get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. Work the steps. I worked the steps. But I, I wasn't completely honest. So in step one, in step four, I held back some things of sexual misconduct I had done, specific stuff I had done, fought, acting out with objects, crossing lines of legality, things like that. And, uh, and I relapsed after 53 days. And what I should say about the pitiful and incomprehensible demoral, demoral like I said, like I said, like I said, like I'm acting out. I'd never felt that worse in my life. I felt, how could someone be in this much pain and live as a result? That, so I was in that, I was in an emotional bottom. And at that time, I called someone, asked what to do. I did it. I showed up to a meeting and I realized I didn't know anything. They talked about surrender. I had no idea what surrender was. And I said it. And I got a sponsor. And I started being honest, trying to be honest about everything. And I really, I don't know what happened. I was given a gift. I was thrown into the steps, working a program with people who were working a program. And I worked through them quickly and started sponsoring people quickly. And what, what, all I can say came out of it, the thing that kept me sober then, I think, or at least keeps me sober, is the realization that, like in the big book for the alcoholic, I really do have a three-part nature of the addiction. I have a physical allergy, which means when I start lusting, I can't control where it goes. I have a mental obsession, which means that the, at key moments, I can't bring to mind with sufficient force and clarity all the pain, suffering, and the incomprehensible demoralization that lust had brought me before. So I have no mental defense against the first drink. So regardless of what I do, what I think I'm doing, at key moments, I'm like a castle. You know, you know I'm trying to do all this stuff to stop. I got a filter on my phone. I had all this stuff. I didn't go to this part of town, but at key moments, I was like a castle. I had knights all around guarding it, but at key moments, the drawbridge comes down, the enemy just walks in, there's no fight. And that's my dilemma. I need a spiritual defense. And the mental, and excuse me, the relentless progression. Over any given amount of time, it gets worse, never better. Very hard for me to accept that in the years, the two years I was trying to stop, I actually was still getting worse. And if I go back out there, I will be worse than ever. So uh, that was back in uh, my sobriety dates, October 29th, 2003. You know, I got very involved. I was going to, oh, four or five minute means a week, sponsoring a lot of guys, whatever. And, that, that, and then I got married in 2009. I went, met my wife online. I was several years sober, got married, and it had been hard for me to be involved at the same level. I was still making two meetings a week, sponsoring people, whatever. Um, and uh, since I've been out here in Minnesota in 2012, it's also been hard. I mean, and again, I'm not trying to make excuses myself. I'm lucky if I make one meeting a week, I try to keep talking to sponsees, talk to my sponsor fairly regularly. I do have five kids, ages seven uh, to, uh, to two months, three months almost. So that's part of it. And, uh, and what it's like now is what I'm like now is that, uh, you know, I try to practice these principles in all my affairs. Uh, I don't do as well as I used to do, but I'm grateful I did that well then because I can draw on that. And I'm, 
I'm lucky. And sometimes I think being in the center of the program creates luck where I have sponsees that are calling me other people that are calling me like, like, uh, like a sponsee who set me up to speak here. Um, that gets me doing what I need to do with my people because you are my people. This is the place I need to be. This is the message I need to carry. Uh, so today I still, by hook or by hook, cry to make a face-to-face meeting every week, which, and again, I never incur, I encourage people to make at least two and make phone meetings. And I just, uh, the, the thing I could say, if I could impart to everyone, is that this is a program of failure. What I mean by failure is that I'm never going to respond with the level of urgency, the level of dedication, the level of energy that is warranted by my condition. Hopefully, and God is good, I will respond enough. (laughs) But it's never going to be at the level it should be. And that's an important realization for me. And and one thing, and, and I'm going to say this, maybe this is a personal opinion. No one seems to find it very useful, uh, but I do. It helps me, is knowing my baseline. You know, if I know that I'm going to be resistant most to the thing that's going to do me the most good in the program, uh, I can at least try to do that thing. And that's been my experience. So for me, it's working the steps. For me, it's doing a nightly 10-step inventory like it's laid out in the big book, which I used to do every night, which I haven't consistently done in years. I'm trying to come from my weakness. I mean, this is something I try to do every day and I don't. And I'm just grateful today. I'm trying to be grateful to God, the fellowship, y'all the program, that somehow for all my weaknesses, I'm still sober today and, you know, have some emotional sobriety. And I should say that uh, with the steps is that the steps in my experience, I've sponsored many people and with myself, the greatest level of opposition is working the steps, specifically step four, you know, maybe step nine. But the thing is to do them, do them imperfectly. And if I'm resistant, surrender it. So wherever I am in life, whatever I'm having trouble with, the answer is surrender. The answer is surrender. And I'll say this, this one thing that's important point as well is I found that the whole thing that's the main thing about step one is that some other person knows the things I want to take to my grave. So so for me, uh, about a year in the program, I got to the point of surrender. And I think what did it was, you know, I was going around and I think it's inevitable there's going to be white knuckling. There's going to be a lot of self-will applied to try to surrender less to God. And there was a lot of that going on. I'm walking around the street. I'm looking around. I'm saying, don't look. Uh, don't think about this. Don't go here. Don't do that. And I was doing that. Uh, but what happened was I was at the time, I was an extern I'm in a law field, and I was externing for a judge, and I had to review, write opinions and review uh, cases that involved some really horrendous stuff, including horrendous sexual stuff that's, you know, illegal and whatever. And I found myself tempted by the material. And that scared me to death. But what I, did, I talked to my sponsor in a way appropriate. I told the group and said, look, I'm hopeless. I have no way out. Left to my own devices, there's nothing I will stop at, giving time and the opportunity. And that realization and staying there and going back to that repeatedly and saying that to God and saying that to others, I think it's kept me in a step one place because if I don't have a way out, uh, if I'm going to drown in 10 feet of water, okay, that's a problem. But if I'm going to drown in 10 feet of water, I'm also going to drown in 100 feet of water. And my experience has been with difficulty in life is that I can't, you know, when I came to the program, I was single. I didn't have a job. I was in law school, whatever. And I couldn't stay sober then. So I couldn't do it then. Today, I have five kids. I have a job. I mean, lots of problems, but I have a good marriage. Sex is optional in my marriage. Uh, there's been periods of more than, a, more than, I think in some cases of a year where there was no sex going on or anything else like that because my wife has difficult pregnancies. 
Uh, but the point is, is that working this program, surrendering the expectation of sex, you know, uh, trying to do the whole deal, prayer, meditation, et cetera, has made it possible to have a life that people who aren't in SA can't have. I mean, my wife is on a bunch of forums and stuff online and they, people have all sorts of problems that we don't have just because I'm so sick that I have to work this. So I'm grateful for that. And the other thing I'd say, just opposition, you know, if you're to a newcomer or anyone else who's here and maybe SA doesn't feel right for you or it hasn't worked out or whatever, I say, join the club. Uh, and it's not just SA. So I'll say this and shut up. Just maybe just to give a sense. My wife is on these online forums and uh, of mommies and whatever. And she shared probably a hundred times with a hundred different people. She doesn't go to Essendon, uh, but about Essendon, about SA for women who are complaining about their husbands or themselves. And there's only been about three people that have ever responded. And I only know of one person who has gone to meetings and gotten sober. Uh, so what I would say to that is that by the law of averages, I mean, if she posted something about like, hey, here are these crystals, buy them and your husband won't act out, there would be a lot of people who would get those crystals and a lot of husbands who would get those crystals. So all this is to say, as strange as it sounds, <laughs> where I am today to end up with, where I'm at now, is that the thing that works is the thing that I think won't work. And uh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be opposed to it. I'm going to be resistant to it. But if I keep coming back, if I try to get back to basics, you know, I don't know sports well, and one of my struggles in life was that I was bad at sports, but I've, I think I've overcome that. But the thing I do know is that most football teams fail, not because they don't do some sophisticated uh, play. It's because they miss blocks and they miss tackles. And my experience in SA is I'm going to miss blocks and miss tackles, but I just need to keep getting back to basics. And the basics are I'm a sexaholic and I can't manage my own life. Probably no human being could have relieved my sexaholism. God could and would if he were sought. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to speak, and I'm going to keep coming back. I think that's all for me. Thanks. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you.